This is Christian Book Blurb, brought to you by author and songwriter Matt McClary. Get a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the lives of some of your favourite Christian authors. Hear about their books and faith. Also, why not check out my website, mattmcclary.com. Well, hello and welcome to the Christian Book Blurb podcast, where we like to encourage you in your discipleship one book at a time, as we meet some amazing Christian authors and learn about their books, their lives and their faith. I'm your host, Matt McCleary. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now, on today's show, I'm going to be talking about misreading scripture with Western eyes with the fabulous author E. Randolph Richards. Welcome to the show, Randolph. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. It's so nice to be invited. Now, you've written um, a, a fantastic book. Before we start digging down into it, um, I want to start by asking you the question, is it, is it possible to misread scripture? Surely what it says is what it says, um, and that, that's it. Um, and, you know, when we start dissecting it and analyzing it, do we start to undermine the word of God in some way? What, what's your take on this? Can we misread scripture? Well, uh, Matt, human history uh, tells us that we can misread scripture. It would be great if that were not possible. But uh, anybody who's done any study of history sees how scripture has been misused. Um, so what I was addressing was not the deliberate misuse of scripture, but rather what was subconscious or accidental, where I superimposed uh, unintentionally my culture on scripture. Part of the reason, Matt, is, and this is a difference between uh, us and our listeners and the biblical world, we are from what's called a low context culture. The UK, the US, a lot of the West, meaning we don't assume as much goes without being said. And so we tend to explain a lot more when we tell stories. Uh, biblical culture is what we call a high context culture, meaning they leave a lot unsaid. Um, you, you know, when Jesus says a man goes out to sow seeds, you know, that beautiful parable, mm. um, he doesn't tell us anything about sowing or how it worked. Or here's something significant. He doesn't tell us what a normal harvest is. And so we read, Jesus says, you know, uh, somewhere uh, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So I subconsciously assume that would be a weak harvest, an average harvest, and a good harvest, 30, 60, 100-fold. But the average harvest was sevenfold. So what Jesus' hearers would have heard was... Um, Yes, a lot of seed falls on unfertile soil, but the ones that do fall on good soil produce amazing harvests, unbelievable harvests, and ridiculous harvests. So mm. it's a different meaning, but it went without being said. Mm, that's really fascinating. That's really good. And I must say, when, when I read your book, there's so much fascinating stuff in it. Um, and by the way, it, Rand, Randolph's book is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. So do go and check it out. It's been really good. And I must say, reading your book has actually challenged the way that I read the Bible um, and has started opening my eyes to the cultural <laughs> context um, that that it was written in. It, it's so it's so good. Some listeners may be unfamiliar with the concept of of culture 
impacting how something is written. Um, can can you explain this? How does culture impact the way we write? Well, first, it does. Um, you know, whether we would want it to or not, God chose to use humans to produce his word. So it didn't come down on golden tablets from heaven. He used real live people to say what they wanted to say, but God in his wisdom produced also what he wanted to say. So all that is is helpful. But how a culture impacts us, you know, Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciples. Wow. <laughs> hate your father and mother? You know, in our culture, we would never say it that way. Um, what we would say is God's got to be a higher priority than our parents. But that's not the way they would say it. They say things in dramatic ways uh, in the ancient Near East and actually in the modern Near East. Mm. And this also affects the reading of of certain texts as well. Um just one example, actually, taken from your book that, that I've got. I mean, you, you, you use a comparison or, or a picture of Americans liking to have their teeth as white as chiclets, <laughs> is what you say in, in your book. Um, now, that in a, in a reading that, being in a UK context, is very interesting because we don't get chiclets here. Ah. So you know, well, you might start asking yourself, well, what is a chiclet? You know, is, is it like a baby chicken or, or something, <laughs> you know, trying to understand this, this, this foreign word. But for me personally, I originally come from Zimbabwe in Africa. And there's a lot of um, influence from the US in Africa. And you do get chiclets there. So I knew what you were talking about. I knew you were talking about little little sort of um, squares of, of chewing gum, um, but read in a different context, in a different culture, that might be misunderstood somehow. Right. And part of the, the point I wanted to make out of that is in the U.S., for instance, we take teeth far more seriously than most of the world does. And so... If you're doing a movie of Jesus, you've got to have an actor who's had orthodontic work. Um, otherwise, we feel like that is somehow um, disrespectful. Um, you know, he's always uh, nice and clean. His hair is freshly washed and all those kinds of things, even though uh, soap really hadn't been invented yet. And, you know, there's just a lot of differences in the ancient world. But for us, it's not just that we imagine Jesus a little different. What we prioritize seems so very different. I love what you said in your book as well about um, the language being used and how different cultures in the world, the things that they find really important, they have lots of words for. And the things that aren't that important have fewer words. Um, I found that really, really interesting. Well, Matt, your listeners would know this because you Brits take rain very seriously. Oh, and so you have lots and lots of words for rain. <laughs> that's true, that's and, true. And and my Lebanese friend says we have one word, and it also means winter. Right. Wow. That, that it's interesting, isn't it? And 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 trying to understand this and know this when we read the Bible and to try and put ourselves into that area or into that culture um, will help us understand it better. 
Well, an example would be, Matt, and I talk about this more in the sequel to the book that we're talking today, but this idea of honor and shame in in U.S. culture and in British culture, I imagine, uh, shame is only talking about the misuse of shame. Um, And so shame is always a negative word. Uh, My college students will say, oh, it would be sin to shame someone. And I point out, well, God shames people. Jesus shames people. Paul shames people. Um, And it puts them at a little bit of a loss because we we know it's wrong. Well, it's wrong to misuse shame. Um, But it's interesting. I'll say it this way. Shaming is a biblical virtue and a cultural vice because in our culture, all we ever use shaming for is what I call the misuse of shaming. It's designed to push people away. So how is it used that in, in sort of a Middle Eastern um, culture? It is used actually, well, first to understand it, but, uh, a sense of shame was actually a good thing. It meant you knew the proper way to act in that situation. So if you think back to older uses of our language, we would say, have you no sense of shame? Meaning that you should have had a sense that told you the right way to act. So it would be bad to be shameless. Well, in our culture, we've just made such a mess of it. Shameful and shameless now mean the same thing, which is ridiculous because it, how can you be full of it and not have it and mean the same thing? So in the biblical world, a sense of shame meant you knew the right way to act. And so uh, a sense of shame would tell you you're either stepping outside the boundaries or you're about to step outside the boundaries. And this sense of shame would, it's uh, the individualist equivalent is a, a sense of conscience that I realize I'm stepping outside the boundaries and I'm being pulled back. But shame is a community sense of the whole community is saying, you're about, you're one of us and you're about to go too far. So it's designed to pull you back. It's always a restoration. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's very interesting. With all what we've talked about so far, um, why is it important that Christians, especially when we come to read the Bible, why is it important for us to um, be aware of our own Western culture and how that's different to the Middle Eastern culture where the Bible was written? Well, often in the Bible, because it is a high context culture, they tell you the couple of key things you know, but the rest is often left unsaid because, you know, everybody knows that. Um, And so like in the Joseph, the coat of many colors, Joseph, the patriarch Joseph, the one thing you needed to know was he's not getting along with his brothers. That's the one thing you need to know. But what went without being said is the whole discussion is about inheritance. Um, You know, I tell my students, well, Joseph was the oldest uh, son, the oldest brother. And the ones who know their Bible at all say, no, no, he's not. Um, But technically, he's the oldest son of the second wife. So the story is telling us Jacob has decided the second wife is the one that the inheritance line runs through. So Joseph is going to inherit. So where does that leave all the other brothers? Well, it leaves them dependent upon uh, Joseph. Well, his options come from taking care of his brothers out of his inheritance and their families, all the way to enslaving 
the brothers. So when he says, I had this dream that all of you would bow down. Well, the brothers know exactly what he means by that. Now, since we didn't get any of that, we didn't realize this is about inheritance, that Joseph could enslave his brothers. We think that dream is a prophecy about the future rather than actually Joseph indicating what his plans for the brothers are. So the story ends with Joseph doing what he should have done at the beginning. He takes care of his brothers and the and their families. But because I didn't know that, Matt, things went without being said. As I read the story, I superimpose my culture onto mm. Joseph. So what I do, I don't know if your listeners are familiar, familiar with what we call the American success story. It's this idea that some, you know, a boy grows up out in the country and he struggles and, uh, and has to leave the family farm for whatever reason. And uh, usually not always great. And he moves to the big city and there he overcomes adversity and makes it big and becomes a big success. And his family then later admires him. So I convert Joseph into the American success story. Mm. So I end up admiring him for the stuff I was supposed to be appalled about. So that's mm. why we need to be aware of our own culture. I have squeezed Joseph into the American success story. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, when you came to write this book, what 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 inspired you? Because you, you co-wrote it um, with Brandon O'Brien. Has I said that correctly? Is it O'Brien or O'Green? Yes. Um, O'Brien. O'Brien. What, what prompted you to write the book? Well, there's a, I had been thinking about it a while. And the thinking about it came from my 10 years serving in Indonesia as a missionary. I just kept having these experiences where I obviously had misread scripture. And as soon as they pointed it out, I thought, mm, uh, I really have been. And so the actual impetus came from, I was invited to uh, deliver a paper at Oxford in your lovely country. And I had decided to do a misreading Paul through Western eyes kind of paper. And Brandon was my grad student at the time or had just finished being my grad student. And I'd say, and he was a much cleverer writer than I am. And I said, Brandon, would you look at this? And he's the one who said, I think you, I think this is a book actually. And uh, I said, ah, you know, I don't have time to write it. And then I invited him to join me in it. And it's a much better book because Brandon joined me in the writing of it. Mm, yeah. And, and you, you touched on um, how you became aware of your own cultural blindness um can, can you just elaborate a bit more on that sure story i can us? think of two great stories that happened kind of bang bang and that's what got me started i was in a village i think in borneo but i was in a village somewhere in indonesia and the uh after i preached in the service we'd go to a village home and wait for them to cook lunch and so we're sitting around and the elders i could tell the church wanted the elder to ask me something and they kept kind of nudging him and he didn't want to ask. And finally he asked me, he said, uh, so, uh, pastor talking to me, he said, uh, we have a sticky church problem. Could you help us with it? I, I was young. I was a young missionary and very naive and stupid. And I thought, <laughs> sure, I can help you with this. No problem. So I said, yeah, what is it? And they said, well, we have this couple that committed a very grievous sin in their home village. So bad, they had to flee their village and they came to our village. 
and they've been uh, uh, living here now for 10 years and uh, living wonderful, godly lives. And they'd like to join our church. We just don't know if they can. I said, really? They said, well, pastor, it was a very serious sin. So what do you think? Should we allow them to join or not? And so I him around a little bit. And I realized I'm not going to be able to answer unless I know what the sin was. And they didn't <laughs> want to tell me, you know, dirty <laughs> village laundry. Finally, I said, look, I, I need to know what they did. They said, well, they uh, married on the run, which is what in my country we call eloping. And I looked at them and I said, well, what's the sin with that? And I still remember, Matt, they looked at me just stunned. And they said, have you never read Paul? And I thought, wow, I did a PhD on Paul. I, I, I think I read <laughs> and, uh, and I looked confused and they said, uh, Paul says, children, obey your parents. And we know they don't always do it. But in what's really probably the most important decision of your life, surely we should expect that. And Matt sitting there, I sat back in my chair and I thought, in my culture, I had given that verse an expiration date. You know, it mm. expired at age 18. Mm. Um, and I had to think, well, surely in someone's most important decision in their life, they ought to. So anyway, that's when I started thinking, okay. wow, have I ever read Paul? Yeah, yeah interesting. Great story. Um, in your book, you speak about individualism and collectivism. collectivism. I, I think I found that the most fascinating um bit of it personally um, what can you tell us about the culture in which the bible was written in terms of being a collectivist culture what does that mean and how does that impact um, the writing and, and the teaching uh, Matt in fact as I reflected back over 10 years after writing that the book on misreading scripture with western eyes I realized this was not just a difference between say, me and the biblical world. It's probably the most foundational difference. So I think you were right to key in on it. And so I went back and wrote a second book that is an introduction to collectivism for... It's called Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. Excellent. Thank you. So it is actually an introduction for us individualists into what collectivists are are like. So... Um, and. And basically, individualism, we understand. Now, here's what's interesting, Matt. Um, a sociologist uh, on the continent had done an analysis of, I don't remember, like 60 cultures and put them on a sliding scale from individualists to collectivists. Collectivist is the opposite of individuals. So individualism to collectivism, sliding scale. And he said most of them... Uh, you know, are kind of spread out kind of nicely. He said, then there's two cultures that are so far out the individualist side, they make everybody else look kind of collectivist. Uh, <laughs> he said they skewed the data, actually. And those two cultures are the U.S. and the U.K. So we are not just individualists. We are like uber individualists. I can illustrate it. For instance, I always ask, I'll have a class full of both kinds of students. I'll say, how many of you would um, want your family to give input on who you marry? And the collectivists all raise their hand. And the individuals are like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. No. And, uh, and the collectivists will usually ask, well, don't your parents love you? Don't, don't you trust them? 
And they think, well, yeah, I, they love me and I trust them. I'm not going to let them do that. And they, and it's just two ships passing in the night. Mm. So uh, the biblical world and most of the world are collectivists, but we're individualists. And so that's what prompted me to uh, talk about misreading scripture because we read it through our Western individualist lens. And something fascinating that you mentioned in your book that, that I've since used um, and come back to, and in fact have actually picked up a really old King James version of the Bible to help me with this, um, is the, the, the use of the word you that's translated in the Bible. It's just translated in English as you. Um, now, from an individualist culture, every time we see the word you, we automatically assume, ah, oh, that's me. Me, myself, and I. Yeah. You. Whereas, actually, sometimes it means you as in the collected group rather than yeah. you, the individual. And actually, the reason why I've, I've, I look back at an old King James is because in Old English, you have you, have you and ye. And ye is plural and you is singular rather than rather than the one word that we now use that kind of does both. But we just assume it's individual um, and, and it, it brings a whole new dimension to some of the stuff that the Bible's talking about when Jesus or whoever it is speaking is actually addressing a group rather than a specific individual. And that, that, that's just blown my mind. So do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think that means me. My body is an individual temple of the Holy Spirit. So in a church, we've got 47 little temples sitting around. And yet that was a plural word. That do you not know that all of you together are a temple of the Holy Spirit? So Paul is saying the same thing that Peter says. We like Paul's better because we can individualize it. Peter said, you are all living stones being built up into a dwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's actually going back to what the Messiah, the Christ, was supposed to do. He was supposed to build a house for the name of the Lord. And the Christian interpretation is that is God's people become a dwelling place for his name. Um, we're going to be coming back in just a moment to continue our discussion with the author Randolph Richards about misreading scripture with Western eyes, as well as finding a little bit more out about his life. So stay tuned. We'll be back after these. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, you can help keep it on the web. All you've got to do is buy me a coffee. Head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Matt McClary to make a donation. There is a link in this episode's show notes. So go on, buy me a coffee today and help this podcast to keep supporting Christian books and authors. And welcome back to the Christian Book Blurb podcast. I am having a great discussion with the author Randolph Richards about his book, Misreading Scripture with Western eyes now we've been talking a lot about your book and a lot about the the cultural differences and problems we have um reading something written so long ago um in a completely different culture to that we experience in the west today before we move on to finding a bit more about you personally i just wanted to ask have you got any advice to give our listeners any kind of top tips on how someone listening could go about starting to remove our cultural blinders or blinkers when it comes to reading and understanding what the Bible is actually saying? 
Yes. First, I want to say uh, someone should write a book, Misreading Scripture with Eastern Eyes. Um, so uh, I do not intend to bash the West in any way. I think Western culture has been a real gift from the Lord for Christianity, and we've done a lot of great things. And my Western culture helps me read certain parts of Scripture really, really well. Verses on generosity, verses on forgiveness. My Western culture helps me to read those things really well. So when Jesus says, it doesn't matter how many times somebody wrongs you, you've got to forgive them. As Westerners, we can say, well, that's hard, but I understand. And we actually do understand what Jesus is saying. Some of my Eastern friends say, oh, you know. So I do think that uh, we don't want to think because as Westerners, we're reading scripture poorly. No, we actually read it really well. But just as I can read some parts well, my uh, Western culture acts like a lens. It helps me focus and see things well. It can also be blinders or blinkers that keep me from seeing other parts. And so one of the tips I would give is read the Bible more globally. You know, listen to your uh, non-UK or non-American friends. And when they say, oh, this is that, you think, well, an example I would give, do you remember the story of Abraham when he has the two visitors that come and visit him and they're actually angels? Um, so I was uh, reading it with some uh, Lebanese friends. We're reading this and and they get to the part where they bring the food and they say, ah, ah, did you see that? Did you see that? What? What? See what? They said, Sarah doesn't bring bread. And I'm like, well, you know, whatever. They said, no, Sarah was told to make bread and she doesn't bring bread. They specifically don't mention the bread. And I think, ah, you know, I, they said, and then the guests say, where's Sarah? The implication being, and the bread. I never saw the bread. <laughs> never mm-hmm. thought about it. Even now, I think, I don't know, you know, about the bread. But my Middle Eastern friends, oh, they, they say, this is another example of the tension that existed between Abraham and Sarah. And I thought about a lot of other stories where that exists. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Um, one thing we like to do on the podcast is to get to know our authors a little bit um, sort of behind the scenes. We get to know some of you from, from, from the books you've written. But, you know, is there something you like to do for fun or hobbies? Let's start there. So, um, Matt, I have just stepped back from my previous role as provost of the university where I teach, Palm Beach Atlantic University. And so that's part of a several stage, several year process of moving toward retirement. And we have relocated from the beach in South Florida to Wisconsin. And your okay. your uh, British friends may not know where that is, but that's the wintry, snowy tundra. And I've heard <laughs> all the jokes. I've heard all the jokes. But the reason we relocated is to be near grandchildren. So when you ask, what are the fun things we do? I get to see my grandchildren, at least two of the three. And that's my new hobby is being granddaddy to these beautiful, beautiful boys. Um, But I also still teach full time. And so I still have a job. Writing is something I kind of do on the side. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you teach at a university. I do. A Christian university in South Florida. 
Palm Beach Atlantic University. They'd want me to be sure to plug that. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Um, and just what what is the Holy Spirit doing or saying to you at the moment? What What's going on in, in your life? Well, I think I'm in an interesting transition, Matt. I'm trying to learn how to enter a new phase of life. Um, the provost job burns the candle at both ends. I was mm. always busy, 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 busy. But also, you know, everybody cares what the provost thinks, you know, and, and, you know, you're a little bit of a big shot. You know, a lot of your readers don't even know what a provost is, but they're the, like the number two at a university. And then suddenly I'm not, and nobody cares what I think. And so the spirit has really been teaching me, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you have a new role in life and, and you need to learn how to embrace it. Mm. Mm, thank you. That's 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 precious. Thank you for that. And you have written many many books. Um, how many books have you written now today? Oh, I don't know. You know, Ecclesiastes. Yeah, say, says, can you keep count? <laughs> you know, of the making of books, there is no end. Um, I do technical books as well as popular books. Okay. So I'm finishing a book now that your readers are not going to rush out and buy. It's on inscriptions and papyri. And how those help New Testament scholars. Riveting stuff. (laughs) But I'm also supposed to be writing a two-volume commentary on the Gospel of John. And so I'm trying to get my head around uh, the Gospel of John, which is just such an amazing, amazing book. That's great. I was going to ask you what's coming up next, but you've you've already answered my question, which is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, If the Lord doesn't come back first, I'm going to eventually have a commentary on john yeah great and where can we find out about you um have you got a website um i do have one books and matt i'm embarrassed to talk about it in front of someone like you that maintains a wonderful robust website i have a website randolphrichards.com spelled with a ph randolphrichards.com uh, and what's interesting, people will look and they'll say, wow, he just posted a lot of stuff. He was pretty active until 2017 and then nothing. Well, that was the year I became provost. Right. And, uh, and, and so I've just now stepped back from that and I'm going to dust off the website. But yeah. it is, it does have links to some books and, and that sort of thing. But I am, uh, uh, I'm embarrassed to be in the same room with you and your wonderful website. Uh, you're too kind uh, so yeah that's great that's a fantastic place to check out more about you what we'll do for our listeners is we'll put a link to your website in the show notes of this episode as well so if you're listening to this and you want to know more about um, Randolph Richards's books or even if you want to send him a message or anything like that you can do that over on his website and you can just click through um, from our show notes of this episode to do that well it has been a pleasure chatting with you, Randolph. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, we could go for another half hour, couldn't we? Talking about some of the amazing stuff that, that, that we've been talking about. All, and when it's, when it's about the Bible and understanding it better, I, I do get excited. So thank you for giving of your time. It's been really great. I've really enjoyed it. You're very kind, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you to you, the listener, as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Christian Book Blurb podcast. Don't forget, this podcast comes out twice a month. We'll be back really soon with another great episode. 
where we'll be meeting another Christian author and chatting about their books, their life and their faith. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Christian Book Blurb with your host, Matt McClary. Do give it a like, give it a share and let your friends know all about it. We do hope to see you again soon on another Christian Book Blurb.